Hey everybody, it's Brandon. So this is going to be a different kind of episode because Stephen is on vacation, which is his right, I guess. But instead, we're going to do kind of a journo's chat show about the recent news that Adnan Syed has been released from prison. If you don't know, Adnan was the subject of the hit NPR podcast from 2014, Serial, which kind of spawned the whole modern long-form true crime podcast movement. So his release was a big deal. And if you don't know about the podcast, basically it was about the murder of a high school student in Baltimore named Heyman Lee. Her ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed, was arrested and charged and sentenced to life in prison. And so along comes Sarah Koenig, a reporter for This American Life, and she produces Serial, this 12-part podcast that's all about the crime and the case and all the fallout from it. So that came out, and again, that was a big hit. And for those of us in journalism, we thought this is a phenomenon. This is something new we hadn't seen before. It's really changing the game. Well... It's not that simple. So Serial came about because a friend of Anand's name, Rabia Chowdhury, who was a lawyer, had brought the story to Sarah Koenig in the first place. And then after the whole season came out, Rabia and others felt like there was a bunch of reporting that hadn't been done. There was a bunch of errors. And so she started her own podcast called Undisclosed, which covered the Adnan case and then some others in future seasons. And then that became its own hit. But it also revealed all of the problems with Sarah Koenig's reporting in Serial. And so as time has gone on since Serial came out in 2014, there's been a lot of critique about Serial and its reporting and the way Sarah handled things and the fact that some of it's, again, just wrong and that she never made any corrections along the way. She moved on to other stories and has never really touched it again. And meanwhile, Rabia and others have been working, working, working to get a non-story out there and then also to make sure this other evidence came forth. Anyway, one thing leads to another and it's recently announced by the Baltimore District Attorney's Office that they've overturned the conviction and now the state has 30 days to decide whether to retry him or whether to throw the charges out altogether. They found evidence in the original case files that never got presented that suggested there were two other suspects. And basically, between that and all of the work that Rabia had done with Undisclosed, it became obvious Adnan didn't do it. So he was released after 23 years. He went home. It was national news. Serial ended up doing a very short follow-up episode the day after he got out. And, you know, in that world of true crime some eyebrows were raised. So I wanted to talk through some of this. So I invited on Rebecca Lavoie, who's the co-host of a podcast called Crime Writers On, and also works at New Hampshire Public Radio herself. And also Janet Varney, who's a longtime podcaster. She's got her show JV Club. And she's also the co-host of a show called Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. And that show, as a matter of fact, got started also after Serial where Bob was investigating the story of Adnan. And then he's gone on since then to do other cases, other crimes, focused on getting people out of prison who may have been wrongfully convicted. So I had the two of them on, wanted to talk about this case, wanted to talk about the implications of Serial's massive effect on podcasting and just the public perception of it. So that's the story. What do you need to know? Uh, we get pretty in the weeds in some places about some of the other podcasts. So you'll hear a couple, and I'll put information in the show notes, but a couple to know about. Uh, one's called Bear Brook, which was produced by Rebecca's New Hampshire Public Radio. And another one's called In the Dark by APM, American Public Media. And that one's worth talking about for a minute. Real quick, the story is in 2018, American Public Media ran the second season of this series, In the Dark, which again is about crimes. 
Um, and this particular series is by reporter Madeline Barron and producer Samara Freemark. And it tells the story of a man named Curtis Flowers who was sent to death row for four murders committed in 1996. He was tried six times by a DA with a history of racial bias. So there's a lot of parallels with what's going on with Serial. But in 2019, the Supreme Court overturned that conviction and Flowers actually went home and the state's going to end up paying him $500,000 for his nearly 23 years of imprisonment. So that's a situation in which the work that was done led directly to this man being exonerated and weirdly to a podcast's influence reaching all the way to the Supreme Court. So we're going to talk about all that in this episode. So thanks for listening. And, you know, if you have questions, comments, story ideas, send them to us at journos at journos.net. Stephen will probably be back soon. So we'll go over all this and get into some of these stories. All right. Take care. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. All right. So we're here with Rebecca LaVoy and... Janet Barney, friend of the show, and sometime Elizabeth Holmes. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, true. Uh, Rebecca, we had talked a few days ago about the big news with Adnan Syed and his release. And at the time, you said something very interesting, which was beginning to talk about the historical quality of Serial, which was the podcast that brought this story to light in the first place. And um, and sort of set up the whole trend of long-form podcasting, which we can talk about too. Um, but at the time, you had said something very interesting that you were translating, I believe, from a tweet just about the long-term effects of that. Tell me what that was. What, that it doesn't hold up or that they should put corrections in front of the episodes? <laughs> <laughs> I will accept explanations on both, please. Yeah, well, well, there's a lot in Serial that right now is inaccurate, um, wildly so, or th- where there have been significant updates since their reporting, but the episodes are up intact with no changes or any disclaimers. And this is a New York Times property right now. And it shocks me that these episodes of Serial continue to be published online as is uh, because Serial is still a vehicle for discovery for podcasts for thousands and thousands and thousands of people every single day who will discover Serial today, tomorrow, next week. And after listening to it, even after listening to the like somewhat thin updates that have been posted in the feed, will still finish listening to it and think, hey, I think maybe Anon did it. Uh, he's out now, by the way. He's out and m- most certainly did not do it. Uh, so I think it's incredibly harmful that those episodes exist with no updates, with no disclaimers at all. I just, I think it's shocking. I don't think the New York Times would do this with other properties, other print stories. And in fact, they have another podcast called Caliphate in which the reporting did not meet their standards. And there are disclaimers on uh, the episode pages for that podcast, but nowhere on the serial podcast redirecting to any other reporting. Nothing. It shocks me. And what's been the response? I have seen some of the discussion on Twitter about it, um, including just recently Ira Glass weighed in and sort of doubled down in his support mm. of Sarah Koenig, the creator of Serial. And he said, Sarah's coverage is still better than anyone else's which you then retweeted with the replies. Yeah, the ratio on that um, isn't great for Ira. I mean, there are inherent issues with Serial as it's published now, okay? So 
at the time, I mean, I listened to Serial like everyone else did. Uh, this was before. And we sh- I should just say as a disclaimer, I'm friends with Rabia Chaudhry right now in 2022. I helped her assemble her Undisclosed episodes. I do not have any editorial control over Undisclosed. I did not participate in the investigation. I am not an advocate, active advocate. But because of what I know about the facts of the case, I do believe, I actually know for a fact that Adnan Syed did not commit this murder. And I know a lot about the case. Um That being said, even if I didn't, I still think, looking at Serial now, it does not hold up as a piece of journalism really at all. So to even state that in 2022, when there are things in it like the detectives in the case are, quote, basically good guys, uh, one of them has at least one very prominent wrongful conviction case in his portfolio in which he withheld evidence and manipulated witnesses Uh, Not a basically good guy. Um, A very similar case, by the way, in which a teenager was railroaded and imprisoned for almost two decades. And the family won an $8 million lawsuit. Um, That's in there. There have been updates in the case, such as Kathy Not Kathy has now uh, acknowledged that she has the wrong day where Adnan Syed and Jay allegedly came to her apartment. That has now been debunked. Um, they did not contact the person who gave the put the cell tower evidence in the you know file that it, Sarah Koenig was working from. And if they had, they would know that they were working from junk science. There's a whole episode up right now in which they, uh, for list, the listeners, believe Adnan could, be, could be in the site where Heyman Lee was buried because they spent a whole episode explaining cell tower pings that we now know don't matter. They're irrelevant to the case. That episode is still up as stands. So that's something, by the way, that was discoverable while they were reporting the story that, that they did not discover. So I, I just think that that assertion... Also, Sarah Koenig in the podcast says that she's doubtful that Islamophobia exists before 9-11. I mean, there are some real problems with the story if you just listen to it today, that perhaps the excitement around it, as we were all listening to at the time, maybe we weren't paying as much attention. But in 2022, that is a very strange thing to say. Yeah. Janet was listening to the update, the 16-minute update that Sarah put out, again, on the New York Times, that then I think was a run through the Daily their daily podcast. I feel like including the opening title music, which seemed like it was longer than I'd ever heard it go before. <laughs> it was 17 minutes. <laughs> Let's be fair. That's right. Yeah. We know why I accuse people of uh, misreporting. I think it's 16 minutes, but uh, at least padding of a minute of music. Yeah, there really was a lot. Did you think, Janet, that that there was something about that that felt just dated in the sense that when it came out in 2014... It was novel, it was new, and it was like, this is an adaptation of styles of reporting that come from public radio. And, um, you know, and and at the time it was really novel and, and interesting and doing some really cool stuff. Legitimately, no one else was really doing that at the time. But now you hear that not only with all of the subsequent revelations that have debunked so much of Serial, but also just something about the style felt a little dated, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that really struck me was just that sense of, you know, at the time and and, and the way that Sarah has sort of defended it and since is like, listen, I'm just giving balanced reporting. I want to give you all the facts. I want I, I'm not going to take sides on this. That's not what journalism is. I'm not going to say something's true if it's not, if I don't know for sure. But it's also so much her story and it's so much her saying stuff like, 
I don't know, his big brown eyes. Like, I just got a weird feeling about that. So it's cloaked in the idea of being fair and balanced journalism, but it's it's not. So why why continue to sort of say, I don't know, I was just pointing out that it seemed like the case was a mess. Yeah. And that's fair and that's balanced when it it was never fair and balanced. Yeah. And I think you've done such a great job, Rebecca, over the years of having that conversation in your pod on your podcast, uh, Crime Writers On, where you're saying, you know, the way we look at fair and balanced journalism is very different. Uh, and it's been growing more and more different through things like podcasts because we sort of all finally decided, like, you know, in the dark is not biased. No, it's it's just it's advocating for truth. Right. The truth happens to be in advocating someone being falsely convicted or wrongly convicted or wrongly tried multiple times. But that doesn't mean that they're just they have an opinion. And so they're going to make that opinion known. And the Supreme Court backed that up 100 percent, said, like, the data's there. Yes. So when people get mischaracterized as being biased, when all they're doing is reporting the truth, um, and then you have this other side of things where people are touting how unbiased they are when the bias is perhaps more egregious because it's actually not reporting facts. That's a real problem. Yeah, there's a lot of pretzel like bending over backwards to not uh, appear as if there's any advocacy by that team. And that bending over backwards actually does harm. Yes. Because the truth is he didn't do it. I mean, this is this yeah. is the, uh, you know, and, you know, if there is a chance he did it, it is a one in a million chance at this point that he did it. Because I mean, it's he physically didn't. impossible. It's physically, it's but physically also, impossible. if anybody believes that a prosecutor would let a person who there was any chance he committed a murder out of prison, they have not been paying attention to the criminal justice system in their entire lives. That is just not a thing that happens. I've been writing about crime my almost my entire adult life, or part of it anyway. And that is just not a thing. Prosecutors love the win. They love telling victims' families, even if it's not true, that we got the right guy and he's still in prison. They do not like telling victims' families, we got the wrong guy and we're letting him out. That is not a thing. It is not a thing. Um, Serial, (laughs) just for the sake of did he or didn't he, um, really like framed the story in such a like binary fashion, either a non's lying or Jay's lying, either a non's guilty or a non's a psychopath. Uh, the cops are basically good guys. They did a thorough investigation. They did the best they could. So it's either this or it's this. They left no door open to it being anything else. And whenever and whenever that door did open, when someone else tried to open the door in the reporting, when Deidre Enright said, oh, well, there is this active thing uh, happening over here, this uh, serial killer at the time or whatever, it was like, ah, I don't think so. That seems unlikely. You know, well, there's, uh, there's racism involved here. Uh, I don't uh, know. Yeah. Uh, you know, they... Christina Gutierrez seemed like she did a pretty good job. Sure, she got sick, but it seems like she did her job just fine. Uh, I don't know. They, they, they shielded the Yikes. name of the person who says he found Heyman Lee's body way into the woods while he was taking a leak. If you watch the HBO documentary, they don't. By, by the way, his name is Alonzo Sellers. It's a matter of public record. Right. You know, he was he, he was brought in by the police. He was questioned. And, you know, there are questions. I mean, that would be obviously somebody that you would want to, you know, open the door to if you are actually investigating to get to the truth of what could or couldn't happen. And they gave him a pseudonym. In the podcast, they said because he's like your friendly neighborhood streaker that they closed that door. 
So the right. talk about tunnel vision, right? Like when you re- when you listen to it now, it actually is is pretty stunning. Oh, it's nuts. So Rebecca, you come from public radio, mm-hmm. and it's my day job. Full disclosure. Yeah, and so I think one of the conversations that's coming up about this is, you know, does serial represent this older form with, you know, these traditional journalistic. Uh, mores like well you have to present both sides you have to be extremely impartial you can't go in advocating for a guy Uh, and that's just how it is do you think that serial's problems are implicit to public radio to that style of journalism or do you think that's just something that was problematic with serial and and apparently something that's been adopted by the new york times because they haven't corrected it since then uh, Serial's problems don't trace back to the standards of public radio journalism. Serial's problems uh, trace back to the issues with This American Life's journalism. This American Life is not like an NPR product. This American Life is a This American Life product. It's its own organization. And I know there's like a lot of like the public radio infrastructure and ecosystem is so boring to explain. But <laughs> This American Life is not an NPR show. It's a This American Life production. They are their own company. Uh, and so Serial was a This American Life product, and then it spun off into Serial Productions, and then the, this, then the New York Times bought Serial Productions. So that's the that's sort of the you know the timeline. This American Life, which is a show that a lot of people love, and there are episodes of This American Life that are some of my pieces, my favorite pieces of radio ever made. Notably, sure. the car dealership episode is one of my favorite pieces of radio ever made, where they take a month in a car dealership with their um, deadline for how many cars they have to sell that month. And it's the most like suspenseful, compelling hour of radio. It's incredible. They take their like full reporting resources and put it towards this like deadline for selling cars. It's really, really good. Um, the problem with this American Life, though, is and they get a lot of criticism for this, not just for me, is they've traditionally told stories through a very white classist lens, and. This is right on their website in the about section. They say, we do journalism, but it's like movies for radio. Mm-hmm. They, they Their explicit mission is that their journalism is entertaining journalism. Uh, so they have to frame things in such a way that it's like entertainment and fun and compelling and draws you through as a thread. The thing is, they try to have it both ways. Because while they do that sort of more entertaining narrative stuff... They will also do this thing where they claim to be the best journalists in the world. Yes. Uh, yes. They're impeccable journalism. Like they, they mentioned fact checking all the time on the show. They had this one notorious episode where Mike Daisy did a story and lied in the story. Yeah. Then they brought him in and did a whole episode where they excoriated him and called him on the carpet for it. And ever since then, like there's quote standards of journalism are just like impeccable. But it still yeah. says on their website, we do journalism, but it's like movies for radio. So that is, that's that's the root of it. It's because I'll tell you, some of public radio's audio journalism is the most carefully vetted, uh, like well done journalism in like in journalism in the dark is a great example of that. That came from Minnesota Public Radio. Bear Brook came from my outlet. Like the investigations you hear from stations from NPR are. Impe- very often impeccable. Some of them are not, but some of them, they very often are. And this is not a, this is a storytelling thing more than it is a journalism thing, in my opinion. And problem, when I say it's a thing, it's a storytelling problem, not a journalism. I mean, there are, the journalism problems stem from the fact that there's a storytelling problem, is what I'm trying to say. Right. 
Rebecca, why do you think? Do you mind if I ask this question? I don't want to. I don't want to commandeer. Um, so, what is your thinking on just your opinion about why the New York Times hasn't uh, sort of amended things and is letting the sort of uh, time capsule that is serial stay preserved in this very precious way? Um, why do you think that is? I cannot explain it. I mean, I can guess that that team probably has a lot of power. Um, they probably independent, like work sort of independently, like from the editorial, like other groups at the New York Times. Um, like when you listen to the uh, credits of the Trojan Horse Affair, for instance, you hear only serial people really named, you mm-hmm. know, prominently in there. Sarah Koenig was an editor, for instance. I mean, it sounds like very much like the same kind of like insular unit. And I know that that team very much stands behind what they did in Serial. I mean, they're still giving interviews where they're still very much standing behind uh, that season of Serial. So the only thing I can guess is that it's just it hasn't come up. Well, I don't know, but I I, <laughs> I can't imagine it because if you look at the Caliphate web pages, where yeah. every single page says this doesn't stand up to our journalistic standards for more, click yes. here. Yeah. Um, you know, and that the, uh, you can listen to the audio, but it's very clear when when you click on those pages that like something was wrong here. Maybe they still want to get the ad money or whatever, or they want to be transparent about the fact that they did it and not just pretend they didn't. But yeah. it like it would be so easy just to insert something digitally in the front of every episode saying this reporting was done in 2014 and 2015. There are errors and there have been updates. For more, go to NewYorkTimes.com slash serial. How right. easy would that be? There's yeah. nothing there. And you and as I said earlier, like Ira Glass is now weighed in. So there really is this kind of uh doubling down, retrenching of you know, resources and, and for some reason committing to you know, the the infallibility or something. Yeah, of, I mean, it, it does seem like it com- that tweet comes from somewhere. And I, I don't yeah. follow Ira Glass. I don't, like, see what he sees. I don't know what he is perceiving in the culture right now. But it's impossible not to read that as a fuck you. Like, it's impossible for anybody who has any sense of the temperature of long-form true crime podcasting to not read that and go, wow, you're you're really taking a side here that's shocking and is it as simple as he's like on on a personal emotional level going like i'm gonna stand up for my friend because i think she's getting a lot of guff and like just sort of doing this tone deaf thing that he's just like it only matters what sarah thinks when she sees my tweet you know what i mean because otherwise i don't know where that could possibly be coming from it's certainly not based in reality yeah there's a million ways he could have worded that tweet yeah he chose that one I, I don't know. I mean, um, <laughs> 16, 17 minutes. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> all I can say, I'll, I will say, Sonari Glinton responded to one of my tweets. He's a NPR adjacent, former This American Life adjacent black journalist. And he tweeted explicitly about the harm that This American Life team and Ira Glass did to journalists of color and their stories uh, Hmm. that he personally experienced and saw. Hmm. Um, And I, um, there's no way Ira Glass didn't see that tweet. There's just no way. Because that's the kind of thing that like everybody in public radio saw. Like I I got a lot of DMs about that. They were like, wow. Uh, So I, I don't know. I think there is a defense of a friend thing. I also do think there is just, I mean, hubris is the word that I think of. You know, it's the only word that I think of when I when I look at this. 
Um, it would be very easy to say nothing. You know, if you feel that hubris, by the way, when I feel hubris about stuff, um, if I if I know I'm going to get a lot of at me's that I don't want to deal with, I just say nothing. That's like my, yeah. that's my standard thing. Unless I yeah. know that like I'm going to have like a lot of people on my side. Yeah. I, I say nothing. That's that's the move. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I think what is so fascinating is to consider like serial as the gateway into, you know, true crime, the true crime reporting, the genre podcasting and all that. When it came out, certainly it set a lot of people on a journey, not just to consume that, but also to produce it, to go report those things. Um and Rebecca, your point, which I, I think is so wild, is, you know, people who maybe don't have any relationship to the trial of Anon and, and his imprisonment, and which is kind of hard to imagine. I mean, I guess people don't know. I think people are peripherally aware of it as like one of the big stories. Um, but, you know, they may go to listen to Serial for the first time and like you say, like, be like, well, this is the story. And I guess something came out after the fact, but never really thinking about, well, it's wrong. And what I think is interesting about like Janet, for example, Janet, I want you to talk about your experience with Serial because you did the thing that I think a lot of people who are dedicated to true crime uh, do, which is you fell in love with Serial, you thought it was mind-blowing, you wanted to know more, and then that led you to Undisclosed and then a whole bunch of other things. And so talk about that, like how Serial shaped your idea of this case and then how Undisclosed and and Truth and Justice then modified that and made you sort of uh, reckon with the kind of the, the monolith that is Serial. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it was a similar journey to Rebecca. Um, you know, the crime writers started by talking about Serial, but I don't feel like they ever stopped there or necessarily intended to stop there. And that's, you know... I when I finished Serial, I was extremely uncomfortable with the way it ended. I think a lot of people were. I was doing Reddit detives. To this day, I've never spent any time on Reddit except with respect to the Serial podcast. But as soon as other places started talking about it and started talking about things that maybe weren't dug into enough, and as soon as there was a whisper of, wait a minute, Robbie is out there trying to get more people to understand the story in a deeper way... Um, I was I really wanted to show up for it because, you know, I remember when Serial ended and a, f a friend of mine who sort of was more amused by everyone's obsession with it, but certainly listened to it, got me a T-shirt that said Adnan did it, question mark. And and he's a great guy and he's, you know, actually uh, Persian. So it's not there, like there was I was sort of like, oh, wow, you like this doesn't bother you because this really bothers me yep. like i'm really not okay yep. with like a quirky t-shirt that's like about a murder hey maybe it did maybe it didn't like yep. we're all joking about that um and so i i was i was haunted by it and and i needed more information and i think for me that's like the sort of rhetoric on my side um that i've been public about since this happened is just like, I, you have got to stop with, wow, it's cool that Serial opened everyone's eyes to this. Beyond that, I'm not willing to hear anyone say it only exists because of Serial. Right. I just can't. I don't hear that. What I hear is Rabia would never have stopped. And if she had gotten the same story to David Simon, there might have been an HBO show about it. Right. If she had gotten it to a different reporter, it might have blown up in a totally different way. Right. 
So this idea that the, the only machine that could produce this and that we all need to bow down to is cereal simply isn't true. It just isn't true. I agree. And in an alternate universe where cereal never happened, I still feel that Nan is walking out of prison. I feel he's walking out of prison. I feel the public finds out about it. She never would have stopped. I so completely this, agree. Right? Yep. So this idea of like, oh, she Sarah does it better than anybody else. And then Sarah in her reporting on this in the 17 minutes says, you know, this like throws this tiny little bone like right after or before she's saying like, I know who the suspects are as if she's the only person like there's this. We all figured it out. In she's the minutes, only guys. person. Yeah. And then she sort of tosses aside like and, you know, people like Rabia and others who uh, had the time to spend like there's just this implication again of like I was very busy being a reporter in life and some other people were more obsessed than me. So they just, you know, they made sure to spend more time with it, whatever. Like it just is so it's so tossed off. Um, it reminds me of Louis C.K.'s apology, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> like there's yeah. a sense of how do I apologize without actually ever saying I'm sorry or that it's my fault? And those things get under people's skin. And yes, they are going to explode about it because it's totally inappropriate. There's, there's a, one wording that she did that, again, could have been worded differently about the cell phone stuff. She said, we didn't get to the bottom of it in our reporting. She didn't say we were wrong. Right. <laughs> like... They're wrong. I mean, they're, they're, they were wrong to assume that there could have been any veracity. They were wrong because they didn't go one step further, right? right. They, they had the wrong—or right. or, or she could have said, we had the, we we're working off the wrong information, as it turns yes. out. Yes. She said, we didn't get to the bottom of it as if, as, you know, as if it was just, you know, that information is why, in big part, why he's free now. And that's, yeah. that information is in large part why he was convicted, but they didn't get to the yeah. bottom of it. I mean, yeah. just just the wording, the flippant wording is wild to me. It's wild. I mean, you know, I just th- the gratitude language, you know, you should be grateful. A, optically, the entire Internet or, you know, not the entire Internet, 15 percent of the Internet saying that to a woman of color really fucking bothers me. A, yeah. <laughs> B, Serial uh, did two things. It made it publicize the story tremendously, which is great. It also shifted the way we look at true crime from, yay, we got the bad guy and he's in prison to maybe he didn't do it. It changed the conversation, which is great. But I yeah. do agree with you that there is no way like Sarah, Sarah Canning was her first media request. Exactly. That's what I said. People don't realize that it's not like she tried yeah. 100 people. She was the first one. You think someone yes, else wouldn't have taken this story? It's a great story. Yep. Of course someone would have. It's a fascinating story. Rebecca, you worked on Undisclosed, mm-hmm. which was the kind of the great corrective to it that ended up bringing Robbie into the into the limelight, and that had its own great run. Uh, talk about that. How did you get involved with that? And and kind of what was the thinking going into it? Was there already a sense when that was started that like the serial reporting is wrong? We have to fix this. There's so much that's being left out. There's so much that's wrong. Yeah. So I, just so you know, like didn't do any of the reporting on Disclosed. I just did the audio. So I would just like get their stuff and put it together. So of course I listen to everything and that's how I like have so many facts and I read, like read all the scripts and like put the audio together. And, you know, for anyone who says like that audio is still not great. That's them guys. I just put it together. <laughs> I always give, I always give Robbie a crap about that. I'm like, it's not my fault that Susan's microphone sounds weird. That's the tape I got. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, so basically Robbie, I had, I interviewed Robbie 
Rabia on my podcast when we were talking about cereal. I reached out to her, asked if we could interview her. She said yes. She was lovely. That was the first time I ever had any interaction with her. Crime Writers On. Yeah. She then started listening to Crime Writers On when we were still talking about cereal. They started making Undisclosed because she knew that cereal was just getting all sorts of shit wrong. And she had a friend who was a lawyer who was helping her put together like a fund for Anon's defense. And that friend was like, you guys should make your own damn podcast. Like everyone would listen to it. So she had uh, reached, she had had two lawyers who wrote blogs, uh, Susan and Colin, like she was in contact with them. She was like, you guys are doing amazing independent research on this because they were. And then they all, the three of them connected to start making the podcast. But the first couple episodes were like, horrible they had no idea how to put the audio together it was just like terrible like one channel horrible everything so robbie reached out to me and said would you be interested in just making our podcast sound more like your podcast and i was like all right i mean (laughs) sure i didn't i had no idea it would turn into this like great friendship and that i would then sort of become involved in the cause peripherally i was honestly a little bit worried because i like work in journalism am i like now taking an advocacy side or whatever Hmm. i will tell you I looked at one episode script. I decided like, I'll do it once or twice. Like I'm not, I don't wanna be in the credits. I just kinda wanna help out because she seems really lovely. I looked at one episode script and I was like, there is no fucking way that he did this and Serial got, the fact that this isn't in Serial is like criminal because there was a couple of details there that were just like bananas to me. Um, And then I was like, you know what? I'm not covering this story at my outlet. Like, I can I can take a side on this. Let's go back to something that you said, Rebecca, kind of about the the legacy of Serial and its responsibility for creating the the true crime and just kind of modern podcasting. I mean, I think one one idea, like I was working for a newspaper when Serial came out. And I remember everybody was a buzz, right? Like we were a newspaper office where there was a alt weekly and a daily, this is in San Francisco. And everybody was talking about like, this is the new thing. Serial has like discovered some new form of, of, of storytelling that's journalistic. And, and so everybody was really thrilled. Like, you know, we were all collapsing financially uh, and continue to do so afterward. But there was some sense that like something's changed and we think it's changed for the better. We think there's a breakthrough here. And, and then a lot of obviously long form podcasting, not just about crime, but about all kinds of stuff, obviously, like million dollar empires have been built on the backs of this concept. And, you know, there's been so much evolution, obviously, podcasting is podcasting. But but I want this, this is a question for both of you. What do you think about that? The idea that like serial is the, the, the text, the first uh, significant innovation in podcasting that, that made so much of modern podcasting possible? I mean... With- I'll say the same. I mean, it's like I'll say the same thing about serial that I say about like the people say that serial is why people like true crime or why true crime exists now. It's like it's like people saying that, you know, uh, you know, as I said in a previous interview, uh, that Brooklyn didn't exist before white people moved in there. Right. So I I do believe if it weren't serial, it would have been something else. Um, That being said, serial was a great um, thing for it to be because it hits so many boxes for so many people. I think the appeal of Serial in particular was that it tickled our high school gossip funny bone. 
Um, it's a story that took place in yeah. a high school. It, yeah. it, it's sort of like for us, especially Gen Xers uh, and like older millennials, like brought back that sort of like 80s, 90s, what it was like to go into high, to high school in a pager uh, flip phone era where it was like you couldn't really reach people and you danced to Jodeci at your prom and you passed notes in class and you had hall passes. Like there was a lot of gossip in that podcast that I think made it viral. I think that mm-hmm. is what made it viral, honestly. Um, could there have been another show that did the same? There could have been. There absolutely could have been. Um, Sarah, Koenig could, Sarah Koenig could have made the other show. That, that right. did the same. It didn't have to be serial. Um, they were obviously going to make something. And this is yeah. the thing that they chose to make. Yeah, I completely agree. I think someone would have got there. I think there are too many, you know, there's too much evidence that people love true crime, not just from an Oxygen Network ID place, but also from a McGinnis Books, uh, true, you know, Truman Capote, like all of the stuff that... Dateline. we Dateline. Like we would have been listening to, someone would have got to it. I totally agree with why it was so juicy for people. Um, and I think it was also, it really helped that, you know, white liberals were listening to it and it was sort of a tame setting, but it also happened to be uh, somebody who had brown skin and someone who was Asian. Like that this sort of felt like, oh, this is okay because it's not white, missing white woman syndrome. Um, so it sort of had these incidental things baked in that made it also okay to talk about and sort of obsess over in that regard as well. Um, But I think we would have gotten there. I mean, when you look back, like I had a podcast. I was already doing my podcast. I've been doing my podcast for uh, several years by the time it came out. I was a guest on many podcasts. I was a huge Radiolab listener. Could Radiolab have done something serialized like that? I absolutely think they could have. Um, I think it was bound to happen. I think it was bound to happen, either from a big network or from uh, somebody who had an who had a book and said, you know what, instead of releasing this as an audiobook, I'm going to read this as a podcast. Like, I like podcasts. I'm going to put, you know, meet it out in Mark Twainy kind of, you know, or Charles Dickens type of like once a week, you'll hear part of, you'll hear a chapter or whatever. It would have happened. It's a collective collective conscious thing. It would have happened. Whenever people say like Serial was the first big podcast and always like Mark Maron would like a word. (laughs) Jimmy Pardo would like a word. (laughs) Doug Benson would like a word. Chris Hardwick would like a word. Now I'm naming a bunch of white guys for sure. But, you know, those there were people were listening to podcasts. They they just were. Yeah, it was broy. But it was happening. There's a lot of bro stuff. But then there was a lot of public radio stuff that had also come into podcasting. Um, and, and it wasn't just This American Life. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, there was an innovation that happened the same time that Serial came out. And it's not Serial's doing that this happened. Apple Podcasts spun off their podcast app at pretty much the same moment that Serial yeah. came out. It used no, to be so iTunes. Right. And then like in 2012, 2013... Apple Podcasts spun off this purple box uh, that made podcasts available in a separate thing. And then people bought new iPhones around the time Serial came out. That thing was sitting on the home screen. It hadn't been there before. It wasn't there before. And suddenly it was. So Apple Apple tells us what's important on our phone. And it told us podcasts are important. Yes. And that was right before Serial came out. So there I don't think the listening opportunity would have been there if Serial had come out in 2011. That makes sense. So both of you do true crime related podcasts now and talk about, again, for both of you, kind of what's the difference between something like the traditional journalism that 
you know, was in newspaper, magazine, radio, and now has migrated and, and mutated in a lot of ways into in modern podcasting. What do you see that's that's familiar to an older style of journalism? What do you see that's that's novel? That's that's breaking those those old patterns. Uh, well, can we talk? We're talking about like good true crime podcasts. We're not talking about the chat shows that just do Wikipedia shit, right? Well, that's interesting too, right? So much of podcasting is just taking other people's hard work and. And making money off of that, some of these really yeah. a lot of it is shows. that, and that's yeah. problematic. There's a lot of plagiarism. Yeah. There's a lot of stealing other people's work. There's a lot of just talking about stuff and speculation and not knowing what the hell you're doing. There's also a lot of people out there doing quote investigations who have no idea what the fuck they're doing, and they're at FOIAing cops for no reason other than their personal curiosity. It's wild and bad. Um, but what I see as an advance in journalism, and uh, what's great, is the narrative form that you can actually talk to people that you can actually like do a contemplative uh, you can take time and do a contemplative take and spend time actually talking to your audience about what something means in between stringing together paragraphs of this happened this happened this happened but what podcasting lets a good journalist do is provide context in a conversational way that makes an audience member feel like they are being escorted through a story and, and more connected to that story as a result. Yeah. And Janet, I think for you working with Truth and Justice, one of the things that's remarkable about that is how much people are willing to go in the weeds on these investigations, like how much detail you can get into over days, you know, over like hours and hours and hours and hours of podcasting where, you know, once upon a time, it would have been a, a long form magazine feature. It's like, you know, a long version of that is, you know, four to six, maybe 8,000 words. Or then, you know, the New Yorker will do like a 20,000 word feature and it'll be like a huge thing. But, you know, I think with the idea that that as our attention spans are ostensibly getting shorter, this kind of podcasting really gives the lie to that. It's like, oh, no, people will invest lots and lots of time in a story to, to greater depths of detail and complexity than we've ever really seen before if they're interested in it, if they're compelled by it, if they're moved by it. And don't you think that's the case with what you're working on? For sure. Well, one of the things I, I would say right away about Bob Ruff is that, you know, he came, he also was completely absorbed by Serial and he was really uncomfortable with the outcome of Serial and was a very early adopter to Undisclosed, wanted to talk about the case, uh, didn't, has an investigative background for sure, but is not a cop, is never pretended to be a detective in that way. Um, he made a lot of mistakes. He's made a lot of mistakes. Um, but he's also owned all of those mistakes. And he has learned from people he respects in the industry. He has been mentored by people who know what they're doing. And over time, he has gone from being a guy who was really troubled by this idea that a non may or may not be guilty when he deeply felt that he was not and ended up having this building this relationship with the undisclosed team with Rabia. Um, but again, he screwed stuff up and he's and he's the first person to say, well, I was an asshole. I didn't know what I was doing. Now, 
whether there's long term damage done, um, I don't feel that that is something that came of of Bob's podcast. And season by season, he is now at a place where innocence projects all over the United States are constantly contacting him with cases mm-hmm. because they have seen the results of what has happened on that podcast. And there are people who are out of prison because of that podcast. And so what I appreciate about him is that he has spent he spends time learning every single episode he does every single season he does. He is learning. He is taking things in and he is his constantly refining to make what he does the most effective tool um, and and still being respectful of the fact that, you know, these are people they are being a light is being shined on them. It, that's uncomfortable. Um, and and that's one of the reasons that I like being a part of it is that I really like to help reinforce checking in with that reality, mm-hmm. but also knowing that. Yeah, there's like there's some slippery slopes that happen in investigative journalism and certainly in um, a, a world in which the, the public wants to help or be involved. But he is doing he's doing the work. And he, and, and I think that is the best possible product of what he does, like what he does has had the best possible outcome as it's developed. But it only could have that outcome if you're willing to own what you didn't understand or the boundaries you overstepped because you weren't uh, trained as a journalist to the place where now innocence projects are like, holy shit, he gets it done. Um, this is a great tool. Uh, but you have to be willing to own, uh, own that. And that takes us right back to Serial. Agreed. And the fact that just own it. I say this all the time in my newsroom during the day. Everybody I work with are some of the most talented people in podcasting, period. And I mean it. Yeah. I'm not just saying that because I work with them. They could work anywhere. I... I have to say, I have no idea why they still work where I work, but whatever. Some some days I wake up and think that maybe it's just because their kids go to school here. I don't know. But I the reason I love working with them, they all still believe they have a tremendous amount to learn. And yeah. that amazes me because there are so many people in this industry who wake up every day thinking that they know fucking everything. Yeah. And it, it's wild to me. Yeah. Yeah, that having that grace and showing, I mean, that's just, that's, a, it, that's exactly what you want. Uh, and, and that's why people are so disappointed that there's, that there has been zero acknowledgement um, in any kind of meaningful way, because it does, you know, I, I was reading the replies as well to Iris tweets and, you know, people are saying like, wow, you just lost a listener. Wow. I thought you were better than this. Wow. You know, people are stunned and it should really remind people that like, you can always get better. And sometimes you should be ashamed of yourself for not doing better because you do know better. Well, and so much of the conversation around journalism, you know, in the Trump era and in the era of the pandemic, all of these things about the authority of journalism and the ability to admit that they're wrong about things and to be able to change positions as new information comes in, all of that is challenged by the fact that Serial seems to sort of reinforce those biases. It reinforces that stereotype of like the journalist as omniscient. And that's really dangerous. You know, I think there's partly it's like, well, we're supposed to be the authorities. Once upon a time we were doing newspapers, we didn't have room to like dither on a story and 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 have soul searching and all that. And of course, one of the things with the digital era is, you know, space and time are now unlimited. So mm. again, if people have an interest in that thing, they're going to have an interest in you also exploring both sides of it, which I think is is so important now. Like these are humans doing it. You want to see the process you, the listener, learn more and are better consumers of the news when you understand, like, oh, here's a way that I 
screwed up. Here's this blind spot I had. Here's how I addressed it. Like all of that is so much better than obviously just digging your heels in, but also like, yeah, like not covering stuff like the evolution of the story, I think is, is what podcasting is brought up and, yeah. and, and is kind of the most important thing now that as far as where journalism can go, it's that idea that like it's constantly unfolding rather than we package the story. It's perfect. Now let's move on yeah. to season two. Yeah. I mean, a journalist is allowed to move on in their life. Like that is a freedom that a of journalist course. should be able to have. Right. Of course. But, but the outlet should not be able to move on with a story. It's a story this big. This is right. not a minor story of a pickpocketing incident. I just right. want to say one thing that I just think is incredible. I have been a longtime lurker on the serial podcast subreddit, which is a shit show and has been for a <laughs> sure long time. Is. <laughs> it is full of racist Adnan Syed guilters. Yeah. It is full of people who think that Rabia clearly is in love with Adnan Syed and that's why she's advocating for him. There can so be no other weird. reason. Uh, they believe all sorts of wacky things. They think the trial transcripts are the Bible for the case. Yeah. There are posts right now on the serial subreddit that say, I was wrong. Oh, it's time to admit good. I was wrong because good. there's no way the state would have blown up this case if Adnan was guilty. There are people still saying, like, I don't understand why Jay would lie or whatever, but, like, I was... Because they don't really understand. They haven't been keeping up, but they're saying I was wrong. Yeah. I am saying... I When I listened to Serial, I talked about it, and I, I saw it very differently than I see it now, and I was wrong about some of the things that I said back in 2014 and 2015. I was wrong, and I see it differently now, and I, you know, I'm embarrassed when I like go back and listen to my old episodes. I'm like, oh, I was wrong about that. I can say that. These people on the serial fucking subreddit can say that. Like, right. it would not be hard. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I love everything you're saying. And I think, again, it's like I if you imagine that the reason that 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 those things have not been said and those acknowledgments have not been made is that there's some sort of perceived cost to do those things. The cost is on the other side. Correct. The cost is in not doing it. The lack of and losing trust by not doing it. gross oversight. Yeah. If you if you're weighing it out, like people will think I'm not a good journalist if I admit this, this and this It's like, oh, it's. It's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Because he is out. Yeah. That's the point, is he is out. Well, this has been great. Thank you both so much uh, for some examples of good podcasts that don't ever make mistakes. <laughs> Wait, what? Hold on. That's right. Uh, is that what we said? That's right. Uh, Rebecca, In the Dark Season 2 doesn't make any mistakes. 100% agree. There you go. Suspect also terrific podcast one of my all-time if you want to if you're listening to this and you think i never did listen to serial what should i do you could just listen to suspect like you could just go to something completely unrelated if this is exhausting to you and just do that and just listen to in the dark season two and then you can deep dive into whatever you want great Rebecca, tell us where we can find you. Um, listen to my podcast, Crime Writers On, or you can follow me on Twitter for all of my insane ranting at Reb Lavoie. <laughs> Just be careful because when you start listening to Crime Writers On, it's that is a real uh, gateway into a series of other podcasts that Rebecca is a uh, part of. So yeah, you're gonna you, you'll find more to listen to from there. Do it. Why not? Come on. Help me feed my family. <laughs> Send her some money. She's starving. <laughs> How much money have we raised on this interview so far? $2,000. Wonderful. Uh, let's go to the phones. Uh, <laughs> yeah, You can find me at Jana Varney on Twitter, at the JV Club on Instagram. And um, yeah, that can, that can send you towards other things. Excellent. 
Rebecca Lavoy, Janet Varney, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. See you next time.